brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How's it going, people from sunny San Diego? I'm your humble host, Greg Carlwood, and it's time for another deep dive around the digital campfire, talking about things under the radar and outside of the scope of that tired monoculture trying to channel us into another polarizing debate over some petty prepackaged political nothingness or mind-numbing distraction. Meanwhile, the world is full of intriguing mysteries, myths, and magic that inspire a deeper understanding and connection with our living experience. We can explore the gaps in the human story, the prospect of advanced civilizations in the last round of history, the elegance of sacred geometry and the fractal nature of reality, other realms of existence, the mystical abilities of a well-trained consciousness, and thousands of other things more interesting than the latest celebrity tweet or some college kids you don't know shooting baskets on TV. Well, these are also some of the things in the bundle of offerings on the Higher Side Altar today as we have the triumphant return of Randall Carlson, a long overdue guest we spoke with way back in 2014. If you aren't familiar, Randall is a master builder, an architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, geological explorer, and renegade scholar. He has four decades of study, research, and exploration into the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science, has been an active Freemason for 30 years, and is past master of one of the oldest and largest Masonic lodges in Georgia. He has also been recognized by the National Science Teachers Association for his commitment to science education for young people. And let me just say, the man knows a lot about a lot. You can find most of his ongoing and enlightening lectures, courses, and writings on his two primary websites, Sacred Geometry International and Geocosmic Rex. My friend and yours, the great esoteric educator, master builder extraordinaire, the Santa Claus of sacred geometry, and the Papa Bear of the prehistory mystery, Randall, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Well, thanks for finally having me back, Greg. (laughs) I know, I know, it's been some time. I'm sure you've just been waiting. (laughs) Yeah, as I'm hearing you give my bio, I'm realizing, you know what, must be an old bio because... I was actually raised in Freemasonry in 1979, so that's 40 years now. And I began my studies in 1969, so that's 50 years. That's a half a century. I can't believe it, how that happened. Wow. 
Yeah, man, been doing this longer than I've been alive for sure. Oh, really? Yeah, of course. Man, it's just crazy that it's been four years. It's wild how quickly time flies because that last conversation we had is still pretty fresh in my mind. We had talked about how it might have been two years ago or so, but it is closer to five. And I'm so glad we could do it again. I think we've both ridden one hell of a digital wave the last four and a half, five years. Oh, yeah. We've put out a lot of material since then. You've had some great field trips, had a really fun to watch debate with Michael Schumer and Grant Hancock on the Joe Rogan podcast. I loved that. And I guess I would just ask you how you feel things have been going. It seems like you did decades of groundwork to be able to speak about as much as you do. And for several years now, you're getting validation in many different subject areas, no? Well, it seems kind of like that way, Greg. Yeah, you know, I first proposed that our planet had probably gotten pummeled by something from space around the end of the Ice Age, about that Younger Dryas boundary. I think I first proposed that in 1988. I know that I have a recorded lecture, a series of lectures I did at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina from 1996, where I outlined the whole scenario in great detail. So, yeah, I've been anticipating it, only because, you know, as I studied into the events surrounding that time period, nothing made sense. And so I began looking for alternative explanations, for example, to the mass extinction of the great megafaun. It just never made sense to me that Paleo-Indian hunters using spears could wipe out 10 or 12 million mammoths worldwide, along with over 100 other species of megafauna that had existed on the planet for couple of hundred thousand, couple of million years, like in the case of mastodons, they go back at least two million years. So all of those animals disappearing all within a very short window of time. I was always suspicious about the idea that Indian hunters coming across the Bering Land Bridge and down through the ice-free corridor were able to somehow exterminate the animals so quickly that they couldn't even reproduce. So that kind of led me into a, thinking about a lot of different things and concluding that there had to be a different explanation. And by the time I got interested in studies about this, which I placed pretty much by the time I really started thinking about this in depth, I would think would have been the early 70s. And about that time is when the results of radiocarbon dating really Radiocarbon dating actually was invented in the early 50s, but it took a couple of decades to build up a meaningful database. So by the early 70s, the data was there that the climate changes and the environmental changes that brought the planet Earth out of the Ice Age had happened a whole lot quicker than anybody had imagined. So that, to me, was always a matter of extreme interest and curiosity. So you know, there was a number of these things. And then, of course, by 1980, Louis Alvarez and his team, along with a couple of other teams, independently proposed that there was an extraterrestrial cause for the Cretaceous tertiary mass extinction, which was, of course, the famous dinosaur extinction. And I was just electrified by that idea that there may have been an asteroid impact. And it seemed to me to make a whole lot more sense than a gradual, slow die-off that sort of depended upon really vague concepts of what might have actually caused the demise of so many dominant species. And then, of course, as datings improved, it became apparent that the window of extinction was much smaller than anybody had previously imagined. It went from over millions of years to hundreds of thousands of years to 
tens of thousands and then literally down to maybe a few years. So, yeah, there's been a lot of developments that have been taking place in the scientific frontier that I followed and that have been tremendously interesting to me. The other thing is that I've always been interested in archaic traditions, mythology, legends, folklore, all of that kind of stuff. To me, the really, really potent outcome of so much of this is the realization that so much of what we've inherited from the past is not just some fanciful, imagined people filled with fear because they didn't understand the world around them, so they just invented things to sort of explain what they didn't understand. Which is kind of where the thinking was at, you know, when I was coming up as a student in the 60s and early 70s. But now it's apparent that, no, these people had a really profound understanding of how the world works. And we need to be paying closer attention to some of the things that they preserve for us through the myths and through the legends and through the folklore. And then coming to realize that really that's just another perspective on this reality, just like science provides us a perspective on these things that have happened so do the archaic traditions, and they actually complement each other pretty powerfully. There's been so much lost from our heritage, just through the vagaries of time, but also through deliberate suppression and destruction. I think most people who are listening probably have heard and understand about the great library at Alexandria, where there was 400,000-plus volumes of ancient lore that were destroyed. There was a similar library at Carthage, similar scale that was also destroyed. When you think about that, there's probably a million volumes of ancient knowledge that are destroyed. Who can begin to even wonder what might have been lost in that? Right. Indeed. And uh, not exactly a question I had planned for you, but I do think it's really fascinating you bring up those lost libraries and esoteric knowledge because I have interviewed a lot of people who dabble in the occult or who practice magical ritual. And in our culture, this is all, like you kind of said, considered to be superstition or paranoia or like some old religious ignorance and residue. But now you do cross these little stories of uh, a box of grimoires found and some billionaire will spend a good heap of money trying to get that knowledge. And I do think that's really provocative, just the idea that some people, maybe in the upper echelons of society, do realize the value of that old knowledge. And when they can, they try to cultivate their own personal private libraries because that stuff kind of works. Well, yeah, and I think that ultimately we're going to be able to demonstrate that there is a scientific basis to it. I'm not necessarily prepared to get into the intricacies and details of how that might work, although <laughs> sure. I think it's safe to say that, yeah, that the human consciousness engages with the world in ways we're only just beginning to understand. And when it comes to the occult stuff, I've studied pretty deeply into the philosophy. As far as the practice, I'm nothing more than a dabbler. Mm. However, any person who studies into it and dabbles in it can quickly verify themselves that there is something there. Yeah. That you do certain things in a certain way, and there are results. Things happen. I've had enough experience with that to become convinced that on some level, the rituals, the symbolism, all of that, it works. And, you know, having been a Freemason for 40 years, what that's all about is ritualism. And it's a very powerful set of rituals that have been handed down to us through the Masonic Institution. And it really gives us sort of an insight into the archaic mind. because. 
the rituals that Freemasons practice today are not that much different than what they would have been practicing 800 or 1,000 years ago, from what we can tell, from what we've been able to reconstruct. There were ceremonies of initiation to the guilds of master builders during the Middle Ages that were engaged in constructing these magnificent Gothic cathedrals. From what we know about those, they're very, very similar. I wouldn't necessarily say identical, but so similar to the modern Masonic ritual that there has to be some kind of a pedigree. And scholars have been able to push the date of modern Freemasonry back to where now it's almost at the threshold of the Middle Ages. But then we can go further back and we can look at some of the older mysteries, the Dionysian Artificers or the Roman Collegium, some of these groups that had the same kind of hierarchical system of initiation where you're given certain information when you master that information then you go to the next level and at each level you get more information generally in the form of symbolism as how the teaching is codified and how it's preserved and how it's transmitted when you get into ritual and you can feel the power of it you really do get the sense yes there is something here it's not just something that a bunch of tinfoil hat wearing weirdos are imagining mm-hmm mm-hmm Although there are tinfoil hat wearing weirdos in the whole, <laughs> no doubt. But guilty. But yeah, my interest is in the scientific basis of how these things might work. Absolutely, I love looking at that kind of stuff. I try to be pretty objective. Uh, I know that there's a subset of any audience like this that's going to think that stuff is a little scary and nefarious. But my attitude is that. You know, maybe a lot of that is leftover propaganda from a religious authorities. And the way I look at it is you got these religious authorities that say, you don't need to do anything but give us money and listen to us. Let us be the liaisons to your interactions with the world. And then there's a flip side of that right. of organizations that say, no, take life by the reins, develop your consciousness, engage with the world in these weird ways that you can and see what happens. And yes, maybe within that subset, there are people who have used the tools for power and nefarious reasons, but tools themselves are objective. And if these are mechanisms of reality, then they don't have necessarily themselves a, a moral component. It's just use them or don't, but at least we should know that they're there if they are. The analogy I frequently use, Greg, is electricity. 300 years ago, electricity was totally a magical force, and people didn't understand it. It was inexplicable. When you look at electricity, it's neither good nor bad. It's whatever you make of it. You know, I'm sitting here and we're talking. I'm in Georgia. You're in California. If it wasn't for electricity, we wouldn't be doing that. I'm sitting here and I've got my lights on, my computer on, and so on. But at the same time, electricity can be used to fry somebody in an electric chair. So Electricity itself is not morally good or morally bad. It's just a force of nature. Mm -hmm. And just as we didn't understand electricity three, four, five hundred years ago, there are these other forces of nature. We certainly have not exhausted our knowledge of the forces of nature. And who was it? Arthur C. Clarke said, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very accurate statement. Yes. And I think there sometimes is a tendency to take the actions of an individual, and then if those actions aren't great, maybe peg them to an institution that they cut their teeth on. And that's not necessarily always fair to do either. I like to just judge people by their individual actions, and here we are. So Exactly. It's intellectually easy to do that. If there's a group that you don't associate with or identify with, it's outside your tribe, 
yeah, it's very easy to look at the actions of, say, any individual and then extrapolate from that to the whole group. You know, one of the things I frequently point out when people start, well, you're a Freemason, oh, you're evil. I've gotten that frequently, you know, from people who have not a clue what Freemasonry actually does or what is. You know, when I go down to the Scottish Rite Hospital for crippled and burned children and I see what they're doing there, and Freemasons are raising over a million dollars every single day that primarily goes to children in need, I go, okay, well, explain to me how this is actually evil. This child that's been burned over 75% of his or her body is getting treatment for free, and it's not costing their family a cent. Somehow it's not equating in my mind how this is evil. Now, don't get me wrong. There are real conspiracies, but there are also a bunch of fake conspiracies that the downside of the fake conspiracies is they distract from the real conspiracies. Mm-hmm. But one of them is the Masonic conspiracy, that Masons are somehow the puppet masters, and you can cite the fact that 14 American presidents have been Freemasons. The last Masonic president that was actually an active Freemason was Gerald Ford. But we haven't had a Masonic president since then. But here's the thing. There may have been 14 presidents who were Freemasons, but there were 23 presidents, Greg, who were Episcopalians. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly, if anybody is the puppet masters here, <laughs> it's the Episcopalians, not the Freemasons. We got them. <laughs> I think we've nailed it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a great point. But I guess I would say uh, when I look at something like the layout of Washington, D.C., that doesn't seem to be derived from Episcopalian traditions, there definitely seems to be an influence there. I'm not saying it's bad, but I mean, you look at the way that's structured and there's some esoteric there. Oh, yeah. And the thing of it is that the Freemasons have adopted a body of symbolism that's very universal. Yes. It's very archetypal. So you're going to find reflections of that symbolism everywhere. It pervades our language. You know, when you say Maybe not so much anymore, but, you know, when I was coming up, the standard thing to say, you do business with somebody, and at the end of it, after you're both satisfied, you shake hands and you say, yeah, that was a square deal, or are we square? Yeah. Well, it comes totally out of the Masonic ritual, because how do Masons meet? On the level, how part? On the square, and act on the plumb. So, you know, when you're talking about somebody being upright, Masons use the symbol of the plumb bob, because a plumb bob is a... It gives you the vertical. It's a vector that points to the center of the earth and to the zenith. But it's also a moral symbol, and it represents rectitude, Mm. which basically means moral uprightness. So, I mean, somebody tells you something, and you go, really? Are you on the level, man? Yeah, on the level, meaning, are you really telling me straight? But on the level, again, it's straight out of the Masonic ritual. Because being on the level means you're dealing straight with somebody. Mm-hmm. See, So, I mean, I could go on and on. There's a lot of those kind of little things that have pervaded regular popular culture without people knowing about it. But they're there. And, yes, a lot of influential people have been Masons over the years. And there have been some unscrupulous ones. Here's the thing. Masonry is open. Mm-hmm. If it's British Masonry, it's only open to men. If it's French Masonry, it's co-Masonry. It's also open to women. But just like you could take any organization, if you're an ambitious individual, you know, you might go, oh, Freemasons. If I join the Freemasons, you know, it'll provide me a venue for networking, for making contacts. And really, there's nothing wrong with that. But that, of course, is not the real motive that should bring you into Freemasonry. When you look at why individuals join Freemasonry, I think there's maybe four main reasons. One is the one I just said. 
the social end of it, the entrepreneurial end of it. Somebody wants to get in and make contacts, networking, that kind of thing. Then the other one is that, well, my dad was a Freemason, my grandfather, my uncle, so it's kind of a family tradition, so I'm just going to do it, just to carry on the tradition. Third thing is you get people in there who are very much drawn to the charitable aspect of it. They want to contribute something, so they want to do something good, and so there's multiple opportunities for getting involved in charitable work once you get into Freemasonry. The fourth one, which to me is really the ultimate one, is you want to understand the mysteries of life and existence. And you've gotten a sense that Freemasonry is a repository of these ancient symbols that have been preserved for centuries upon centuries. And there might be something of value there. Mm -hmm. And so that was my primary motive for going into it. Once I got into it, only after I got into it did I find out that my mother's father had been a Freemason. So I still wear his apron, which I inherited when I go to lodge. So there's different reasons why an individual might get into Freemasonry. And in a sense, they're all valid. But you're also going to get some people in there. I mean, are you going to judge all Quakers on the actions of Richard Nixon? I think mm -hmm. not. You know, are you going to go, Richard Nixon was a crook. Therefore, all Quakers are crooks, mm -hmm. right? But that's kind of how it works. But, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find really evil Masons. I guess the most evil thing that I know of any Freemason has ever done was Harry Truman bombing Japan, which, you know, Harry Truman was a grandmaster of Masons in Missouri. And, you know, the bombing of Japan was not a military necessity, no matter what they've said over the years. You know, if you study into it, what you do find out is that the high military command said you don't need to. They're going to collapse long before December. It was primarily a political decision, mm. pushed very much by the need to be able to overawe the Soviets in the post-war negotiations of how to divide up the spoils of World War II. And when Harry Truman went in to meet Stalin at Potsdam, he very much had the atomic bomb in his back pocket, not knowing that Stalin already knew about the atomic bomb. And in fact, while Truman was there, that's when they tested the first atomic bomb at Alamogordo. So Truman was very much thinking, oh, man, I've got the big stick here now. Of course, it didn't work. <laughs> um, they were predicting that it would take 20 years for the Soviet Union to develop their first atomic bomb, and it took something like four years. So American intelligence wasn't too accurate about their projections back then, just as they're not too accurate about some of the things they are projecting now. But that's another discussion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Man, yeah. And like you said, Freemasonry does not have a monopoly on esoteric knowledge or universal truths. It's just a nope. school and people of all places on the moral spectrum can get involved and use those tools and schools however they see fit. I just like to maybe try to introduce some nuance into the conspiracy culture, which can be a tall order sometimes. But hey, here we are. And uh, I wanted to get a little more into the Younger Dryas impact catastrophe work you do. Obviously, that is a highlight of your repertoire. And you told us a little bit about it there because it has been so long since we last talked. But when we were setting this up, you said more and more data is being discovered all the time, and much has advanced since we last spoke. Maybe you could let us know what are some of the things within this realm that you think have really kind of come to light in the last four or five years? What's some of this latest data that you find to be exciting? Well, 
the evidence continues to accumulate in the findings around various sites, mostly in the form of impact proxies, which are the various things that are associated with a hypervelocity impact, such as magnetic grains, small microspherals, iridium, platinum, shocked quartz. There's a number of these different proxies that are used that are associated with high-energy impacts. It's interesting that we were just talking about atomic bombs. Between the Soviet Union and America, we tested hundreds of atomic and then hydrogen bombs. And one of the things that is a consequence of that is you had these high-pressure, high-temperature events that created proxies now being found to be associated with meteorite and asteroid impacts. So in other words, some of the things that were found in association with the extreme temperature and pressures of atomic testing and hydrogen bomb testing have actually enabled us now to identify their naturally occurring counterparts, I should say. So, oh gosh, there's been a lot. I mean, the most recent is the use of these new technologies, such as transmission electron microscopy or high-resolution transmission electron microscopy or energy-dispersive X-ray spectroscopy, accelerator mass spectroscopy, whatever. There's a bunch of others. What has allowed us to see things on a microscopic level, because, for example, microspherals, you can't see them with the naked eye, but they certainly show up under the microscope. Nanodiamonds. Now, nanodiamonds were one of the things that were found in association with nuclear testing. They had been produced in the laboratory using extremely high-pressure equipment. They had been produced through nuclear weapons testing, and they had been found in association with known impact sites, meteor craters, and had been found in meteors themselves. So that was one of the big indicators that you had this 12,900-year-old horizon, and it was loaded with nanodiamonds. So that was one of the first indications that something like that had happened. And that goes back to the 2007 Richard Firestone paper that was published. That was sort of the seminal paper. It was evidence for an extraterrestrial impact 12,900 years ago that contributed to the megafaunal extinctions and the Younger Dryas cooling, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, October 9, 2007. That was the paper that kind of started it all. They were talking about the carbon-rich black layer, which dated to 12.9 thousand years ago, and it had been previously identified at 50 Clovis age sites in North America. And the thing that was interesting about it was that it was contemporaneous with this sudden onset of Younger Dryas cooling that happened at the same time. Mm. So the group, it was Richard Firestone, Alan West, James Kennett, gosh, and about a dozen or more others, Luann Becker, Ted Bunch, Paul Mayuski, who said, well, let's see, wait a second. Now, we've got this black mat layer. It's at 50 Clovis sites. It seems to be associated with the sudden disappearance of the Clovis culture. It seems to be associated with the abrupt onset of the Younger Dryas cooling. And the other thing was that when they looked at megafaunal remains, what they kept finding over and over again was that megafaunal remains were below this layer, but not above the layer. Now, this layer, I might mention, is a black layer 
that separates now is considered to be the boundary that separates the two and a half million years of the Pleistocene from the eleven and a half thousand years of the Holocene, hmm. roughly. So, because below it you have Clovis culture, above it no Clovis culture. Below it you have megafaunal remains, above very scant remains of the extinct megafauna. And then at the same time, you've got this abrupt cooling that had been identified independently as occurring at the same time. Okay, so what happened here? Are these things just coincidentally related, or is there a common mechanism behind it? When they begin to look at this black layer, which typically is only, say, anywhere from one to two or three inches thick, at these various sites. Now, it's not at every Clovis site. It's about at half of them. What they discovered was that at the base of this black layer was the abundant nanodiamonds. And then from there, they went on to look further. C. Vance Haynes, who was a archaeologist who'd done work on many of these sites, who was one of the skeptics a year after he was published, they looked at 97 geo-archaeological sites that bridged the Pleistocene-Holocene transition. Two-thirds of those had this organic-rich layer, or as they call it, a black mat. And he says here, yeah, what he's referring to is oftentimes the extinction of the megafauna at that time is referred to as the Rancho Labrian termination, just to throw that term out. This is what he says. Now, this is a very uniformitarian-minded archaeologist who is finally looking at the evidence. And this is what he says. Stratigraphically and chronologically, the extinction appears to have been catastrophic, seemingly too sudden and extensive for either human predation or climate change to have been the primary cause. It appears to have coincided with the sudden climatic switch from Alarod warming to Younger Dryas cooling. Recent evidence for extraterrestrial impact, although not compelling, this was in 2008, needs further testing because a remarkable major perturbation occurred at 10,900 BP that needs to be explained. Now, you have to understand that there's a 2,000-year difference between chronological dating and radiocarbon dating. So what this really means is 12,900 years ago that he's referring to. So he says that further testing is needed. So considerable amount of further testing has been done since 2008. There was a concerted effort to try to discredit the idea. And this, of course, is one of the things that, you know, the debate there on Joe Rogan, you know, you had Michael Shermer and mm -hmm. Graham. Yeah, Graham was there. So Graham and I were on the side of the proponents of the impact hypothesis. And Shermer and Mark DeFant, who actually I have a great deal of respect for. He's a very knowledgeable volcanologist, but I don't know how much he had really studied into the Younger Dryas because he was quoting some of the critics whose work, in my opinion, has been thoroughly discredited. Hmm. But that's the way science works. As Carl Sagan said years ago, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proofs. This was a pretty extraordinary claim. And yes, it did require challenges. However, when you go through and you start reading the critics, what you realize is that the challenges weren't really challenges in the scientific sense. They were really more efforts to discredit the idea, to smear those who were proposing the idea. And in looking at the background of some of the 
key proponents of these quote-unquote skeptics, those who were trying to discredit the idea of an impact, what I found was that at least several of them were very much proponents of the overkill hypothesis, which is the idea that human hunters, paleo-Indian hunters, exterminated the woolly mammoths and others, and this somehow triggered some kind of a cascading effect throughout the planetary ecosystem that then, in some inexplicable way, led to the extinction of over 100 other species of megafauna. That perspective is kind of interesting because it's a very Western idea to think, well, we would rape and pillage everything around us. Why wouldn't the ancients do the same thing? They probably just overhunted everything. Well, see, what the evidence now shows, Greg, is that not only did half the major species of mammal on the planet go extinct, the other half did not come through unscathed. There's evidence that there was population crashes, even amongst the surviving species, that then in the post catastrophic world were able to replenish these vacated habitats. But it's also clear now that the human population undoubtedly took a hit as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the work of David Anderson, Albert Goodyear, in 2011, they published a study, multiple lines of evidence for possible human population decline and reorganization during the early Younger Dryas. So they began compiling evidence that the human population crashed during the very same time that the megafauna went extinct. Hmm. Let's see, using the Paleo-Indian database of the Americas, which integrates the database and uh, GIS technology to provide location data for almost 30,000 Paleo-Indian projectile points. Jeez. So what they found was when they began an analysis, they found that there was the data clearly indicate a major decrease in the number of artifacts in many parts of North America during the early centuries of the Younger Dryas. This decrease is interpreted to represent a decline in human populations and a major reorganization of settlement systems, something likely related to the major changes in biota observed over this same general interval. And since 2011, a lot more evidence has accrued that the human populations crashed at the same time, which, of course, is further evidence against human populations going through this unprecedented expansion and able to exterminate over 100 species of animals. Now, you've got to think about this. In North America, Greg, there are four species of proboscideans. Do you know what a proboscidean is? I don't. It means long nose. Elephants. You can add this to your vocabulary. Yes. If you want to impress your friends, you can throw this out and say, in North America, you know, you knew this, right, that there were once four species of proboscideans? And they will say, no, you're kidding. <laughs> but what that means is basically four species of elephants. Mm -hmm. So when you think elephants, what do you think? You think of Africa, right? You might think of Indian subcontinent. You don't think of North America generally. But without this mass extinction event, North America, at the, at the late glacial maximum, if we go back 20,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, what you find is that the megafauna of North America was greater than the megafauna you find in the Serengeti region of Africa today. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. America had giant camels. It had giant woolly rhinos. It had the mastodons. It had the woolly mammoth, the Colombian mammoth, the mammoth imperator. It had 500-pound beavers. It had four or 500-pound armadillos. I mean, 
the Pleistocene lion, which was the size of a horse. It had Ursus Spalius, which was the cave bear, the giant cave bear. Artotus Simus, which was the giant short-faced bear. Try to imagine a bear that stands six feet tall at the shoulder. Mm -hmm. You see, all of those animals were part of the North American fauna. And boom, in a geological eye blink, they were gone. And their demise coincides precisely with that black mat. And the deposition of the nanodiamonds and the collapse of and disappearance of the Clovis culture and a sudden climatic spasm that marked the transition from the end of the glacial period into the younger Dryas. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a skeptic, then, you know, a critic of that, you've got to come up with independent explanations for all of those things. That's a lot. Yeah, I really agree with you. The megafauna mammals are really interesting. You know, I live down here in San Diego and I have friends come out. They want to go up to L.A. and they want to see the Chinese theater. And I'm like, you know what? We should go to the La Brea Tar Pits because that is such a unique place. I mean, it's in this hub of commercialized, you know, razzle dazzle. Yeah. But yet. It's still right there. And if you take a tour of the museum, they have all these, like the short-faced bear, and they reconstruct all these things, and you can see everything they've pulled out of the tar pit. It's uh, quite an incredible, unique place, I think. And it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. The ancient American landscape was much different than it is today. And uh, I didn't expect us to talk about this necessarily, but you were talking about the data that kind of matches signatures with nuclear weapons or the nano diamonds and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I also know you're big on what you call cosmic ecology, zooming out on the universe and realizing the bigger context for our story. I'm wondering if you're familiar with the work of John Brandenburg, who looks at the Martian atmosphere and he's found isotope ratios that he says are indicative of nuclear weapons and can only be nuclear weapons. Now, of course, you're saying that Meteor impacts or or asteroid impacts can actually mirror those same signatures. But have you ever looked into that, that he's saying that there was a Martian civilization because we have this smoking gun isotope ratio in the atmosphere? Mm, no, I'm not familiar with that, Greg. There's so much out there now, I can't keep up with it all. <laughs> Although Indeed. I make a valiant effort, I will have to look into that and see what I think. I can't give you any kind of an informed opinion on that because I'm not familiar with his work. Well, fair enough. And, uh, you know, it also kind of makes me think about some of those claims about the Sahara Desert Glass. Some people like to be romantic about exotic weapons from the Mahabharata causing this desert glass, but it also probably could have been caused by this type of impact, right? Oh, yes, and it could especially be caused by an atmospheric detonation along the lines of the Tunguska event of June 30th, 1908. If you have a smaller object and it's a lower-density object, moving at a hypervelocity rate, it will not actually strike the ground. It'll explode in the atmosphere and release tremendous amounts of heat. So, yeah, I would tend to believe that the desert glass is more likely going to be evidence of a hypervelocity atmospheric impact because Russian scientists found similar evidence associated with the Tunguska event of 1908. One of the core ideas of geology that's supposed to have more recognition than it does was first formulated by one of the, oh, one of the big guns of geology back around the turn of the century, I believe it was T.C. Chamberlain, who lectured on the importance of the outrageous hypothesis because 
he was seeing around the turn of the century that a lot of the theorizing was getting so hidebound and so dogmatic that a lot of the academics and scholars and things were afraid to venture outside the accepted criteria. And so he was president of the Geological Society of America, and he gave an address where he basically said, don't be so scared of the outrageous hypothesis, because every once in a while, the outrageous hypothesis is the one that's more accurate. Hmm. That's how I look at any claims about the Mahabharata that it certainly, again, in the context of what we were talking about earlier, you know, when you have all of this legacy of these things that have come down to us, I think certainly there's enough to suggest that we should be thinking about the possibility of much more scientific advancement in ancient history or prehistory than has been recognized up to now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people like Graham Hancock have been speculating on that for 20-some years now, he's gotten a lot of flack, unfairly, I would say, because he's willing to look at anomalous evidence and willing to explore the outrageous hypothesis, because sometimes if the more normal hypotheses just don't seem to cut the mustard, you have to expand your thinking. And I think there's enough evidence to suggest that there almost certainly was advanced civilizations of some kind in prehistory. And when I say advanced civilization, I don't necessarily mean they look like the one that we've got in the world today. Could have looked completely different. And I suspect very much that they did look completely different. And mm -hmm. you mentioned one of your interests that you might want to talk about was the Grail. I look at the Grail stories as being very possibly a legacy of some of those ancient traditions, of the scientific traditions. Because there's a lot of very, very curious stuff that you find in those Grail accounts that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And scholars have been struggling to try to reconcile the disparate elements, the contradictory elements that are found so pervasive through the Grail literature. But the way I look at it, and this has come from studying pretty deeply into the original literature itself, you know, looking at Robert Deveron and Chrétien de Troyes and many of the others, is that you probably remember the allegory of, what is it, the five blind men trying to identify the elephant? Yes. One's got the tail, one's got the trunk, and they're all like, I know what it is, and you don't have the full picture. Right. That's how I look at the grail. And it's kind of like, to me, each of these authors is describing a different part of the beast. So to some, it's a head on a platter. To somebody else, it's a chalice. To somebody else, it's a lance dripping blood. The symbols that have been associated with it are extremely complex. I look at it as being indicative of a lost technology. Yes. And if you look at the stories themselves, what is the general theme of the grail stories? I guess I think of it as almost like a receptacle for knowledge of some kind, enlightenment. It seems to be wrapped up in that. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely. Going a little further than that, though, you see what happens is that if you read the stories, generally involves a quest, doesn't it? Yeah. Initiation almost. Well, yes, it's an initiation. It's a quest. And what is it that motivates the quest? Well, the story is is that the kingdom went into decline for whatever reason, whether it's Amfortas, the Fisher King, King Arthur, there's variants in all of the different stories, right? And the protagonists vary. If you immerse yourself in the Grail literature, what you discover, it's very dreamlike. You know what I mean by that? It's mm -hmm. like, you know, in a dream, 
somebody will be in your dream and then suddenly they morph into somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a place that looks familiar and then all of a sudden it's not familiar anymore. The grail stories are very dreamlike in that, but the idea is that the kingdom, which had been fertile and fecund and prosperous, for some mysterious reason goes into decline. And it's associated with the loss of the grail. So the quest is to find the lost grail. Mm -hmm. And see, simultaneous with the demise, the deterioration of the kingdom into the wasteland is the demise of the king. So the king, he becomes ill, he's wounded in battle somehow, and he cannot recover. So the Fisher King is laid up in the castle. He's been sick and he can't recover from this wound. And the only thing that's going to heal him is the grail, the power of the grail. But the interesting thing about the grail is that not only will it heal the king, it'll heal the kingdom. It's the means of restoring, of replenishing the wasteland. Now, when you look at the stories themselves, you find some interesting things. They, of course, revolve around King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, which is clearly an astronomical allegory. When you look at the descriptions of the Grail themselves, one of the things that comes out over and over again is the cosmic nature of the Grail, hmm. right? That it seems to have this dimension to it that is otherworldly, right? And it is the means and the mechanism whereby the wasteland can be restored. Now. If we look at the legends of King Arthur, what we find out is that King Arthur, the story of the sword and the stone, he rises, becomes the king, he unifies the kingdom around Camelot. Then something causes this rupture. It's often signified or symbolized by Lancelot's betrayal with Guinevere. And then as a consequence, he gets wounded in the side. Then the wound never heals. And then at the final apocalyptic battle of Camelon, where Arthur is killed, he re-encounters Lancelot after many decades, after they had had their falling out, and Lancelot has come to fight at Arthur's side, but he's still suffering from this wound that he got in his side. Well, that's the same wound that was the wound of Jesus on the cross. Remember when the centurion lanced him? It's the same wound that in esoteric Christianity was the wound in Adam's side when the rib was taken out to separate humanity into male and female. Hmm. There's a lot of really deep esoteric associations with that idea. But here's the thing. As a result of this rupture, the kingdom that had been prosperous and fertile, it deteriorates into the wasteland. And the only way to restore it is to recover the lost grail. And so when they do, the kingdom is restored. Now, what I was getting at is that the Battle of Camelon, where Arthur is killed, is generally dated, actually given a date. It's assumed that there was actually a historical battle that was the precursor or predecessor to the mythical battle, and it's dated at 539 A.D. That's very interesting, possibly 540 A.D. So... There is a date actually associated with the death of Arthur. Well, completely independent of any of that, there's now scientific evidence that between 536 and 544 A.D., something really profound happened to the global climate that caused major disruption 
And in fact, there's a number of paleoclimatologists that have said the coldest year of the last 2,000 years occurred in 536 AD. There's evidence now of at least one really major volcanic eruption and possibly two impact sites, one off the coast of Norway, one off the coast of New Zealand. If those pan out to be real, and it's looking like they very well could be, now you have a mechanism for inducing climatic and environmental instabilities in both the northern and the southern hemisphere. So interestingly, this period that has now been recognized as the beginning of the 300 years of the Dark Ages actually has its own legendary counterpart in this apocalyptic battle where Arthur is killed. So when the quest, whether it was in a lot of the tales, it was Percival who discovers, in others it's Galahad, but who discovers the grail, returns it to Camelot, the king drinks from it, he's restored, the land comes back to life, then they have the apocalyptic battle, Arthur is killed. So all of these dates are now occurring in the legend, according to what science has confirmed, something really drastic happened to the global climate. And there's evidence that, yeah, Britain itself might have been transformed into a wasteland as a result of this downturn of the climate, see? Mm. So as a result of the cold and the dark that came on between 536 and 540 AD, there were massive crop failures. Those crop failures led to famine. The famine led to people being weak susceptible to disease. And then in 542 AD, you had the onset of the Justinian plague, which wiped out in some cases, three quarters of the population of Europe. So that was a major event that now seems to be wrapped up in the stories of the Grail. So the Grail becomes the means of restoring the wasteland that has been devastated in the aftermath of a catastrophe. Hmm. And, you know, I talk about this a lot, but most of the audience that I address have never actually immersed themselves in the Grail literature, which interestingly all came out within a 50-year span of time that is associated with the peak of the magnificent Gothic cathedral building era, right? centered right around 1200 AD, the first appearance of the Tarot deck in Western occultism, the rise of Templarism, the rise of Catharism, the appearance of the troubadours. Oh, the list goes on. The first schools of Sufism established in Spain. All of these things transpired within about a 50-year period. A magical time. Yeah, special time, absolutely. Right around, you know, from the late 1100s to the early 1200s. Mm -hmm. And then the Gothic building wave which lasted from right around the first Gothic cathedral, laying the cornerstone of the first Gothic cathedral, Notre Dame in St. Denis, was in 1130 AD. Interestingly, two years after the return of the sojourn of the first group of Templar knights in the Holy Land. There could be a connection there. I think there likely is. But then within the next 100 years, you have over 80 of these magnificent monuments being built over 500 smaller abbeys, but still it was an extraordinary enterprise that was undertaken. Now, here's the thing that you have to understand about that. Between 540 AD and about 900 AD, that was 
a period of cold and dark. You know, accounts of the time in the annals of that era, mostly kept by monks at the time, would talk about there'd be periods where they wouldn't see the sun for weeks at a time. Mm. Talking about years without a summer. Talking again about the devastation of crops dying in the field and people starving to death and literally turning to cannibalism. This was a period of global cooling. Now, 900 to 1000 AD, the global cooling ends and we go into a period of global warming. And what happened? Growing season began to increase by about a month, right? The latitude at which agriculture could be viably practiced increased by about three or 400 miles, shifted north. The elevation at which you could grow crops shifted upwards. And so you had a time of abundance. And what happened was a century of that abundance. You had increase in European population. You had a decrease in infant mortality. You had an increase in lifespan. All of this is well documented. And with the surplus wealth that was being generated in the warming world allowed for the mobilization of resources that went into the Gothic cathedral enterprise. Because without those surpluses, you couldn't have fed the hundreds of thousands of the armies of craftsmen, the masons, the stone quarries. You had to quarry the stone, which required thousands of workers. You had to transport the stone. You had to carve the stone. You had sculptors who were masters of their craft. You had engineers who were masters of their craft. You had glaziers who were masters of the craft. You had astronomers involved. You had carpenters to build this amazing formwork over which the Gothic vaults could be laid up, right? Where did all this information come from so suddenly? Because it walked in from off the stage of history, fully blown for the most part. Mm. It walked in after 1130 AD. It walked in to the stage of history. The craftsmen picked up their trowels. They went to work. And for between then and the early 1300s, you had this enterprise underway. And then what happened was you had a series of climatic downturns in the late 1200, early 1300s. And then after about 1320, you had the first phase of the Little Ice Age come on. And you started having more crop failures in about 1340 or 42, I believe it was, after a series of famines and crop failures. You had the bubonic plague. So what you see is in that 10 to 20 year span there after the global cooling, that was the end of the cathedral building era. It pretty much ended right there. And that is when Freemasonry went from being operative into being speculative, which means operative to philosophical, because the masters of the craft saw that this sophisticated scientific knowledge and engineering knowledge and geometry and astronomy that's going into these structures, it's going to be lost unless we come up with a system of preserving it because with the social collapses, nobody can afford to build these things anymore. Nobody can pay the armies of craftsmen because obviously all of these people building and the sculptors and everybody, they all had to be fed, right? Mm -hmm. So there had to be a whole network in place to undertake this. And you know what's interesting, Greg, is because when you look at the last wave of classical Mayan architecture, coincided exactly with the cathedrals. When you look at the last wave of monumental earthwork architecture in North America, coincided exactly with the building of the Gothic cathedrals. 
When you look at the last wave of classical architecture in Indochina, same time frame. Hmm. Can this be a coincidence? And further, when you begin to look at the specifics of each of these, even though a temple in Indochina doesn't necessarily look at all like a Gothic cathedral or doesn't look like a stepped pyramid in Chichen Itza or doesn't look like a great earthwork mound in North America, underlying it is the same geometrical astronomical template. And that can be demonstrated conclusively. And in Graham's new book, America Before, he really does get into that in a great detail. And I want to highly recommend that book, which is now <laughs> going to be available this month. Right on. Yes. Clearly, the uh, environment is crucial to our ability to progress. You know, obviously, if we're just trying to get fed, we're not building these cathedrals. So you really have to fold that into the human story. What was going on with the environment? I wanted to ask you about the grail a little bit more, especially that idea of it being a lost technology and these themes of a spiritual quest, enlightenment, dreamlike qualities. My layman's understanding kind of relates to some people I've heard talking about or hypothesizing that if we get back to the origins of religion and the mystical experiences that can kind of kick off a religion, entheogen use was a big part of that. Obviously not so much with our modern sanitized and corporatized versions of religion, but do you put any stock in the grail being the symbol of the sacred receptacle for a psychedelic or healing or even consciousness transporting mixture of some kind, or is that too simple? No, no, no. I would absolutely think that that's a component of it. Mm. There's no question in my mind that that's a part of it. The phenomenon is so complex and so multifaceted, but clearly it has to do with the link between, I think, the state of the planetary environment and human consciousness. And there's no doubt in my mind that, yes, the use of various substances throughout history that we find so closely associated with the origins of religion. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, I've not recently, but way back in the day, you know, I did a fair amount of experimentation and I could probably say, yeah, I think I was destined to be pursuing many of these things yeah. with or without that. But certainly my interest was intensified and accelerated by the experimentation that I did. And what I did find out was that before I quit for various reasons, the main reason being was that the quality of the product declined mm -hmm. precipitously between the late 60s and early 70s. But I discovered that my main interest in it was getting out in nature, getting out away from the urban environment and using it to become much more in tune with the forces of nature around me. And that became my preferred way of engaging in these experiences. Something in the mix. You know, as we're getting ready to close this thing out, I also wanted to ask you about this contact at the cabin event with the Grimerica guys. This is one of the catalysts for the show today. I wish I could go on the trip myself, but I can at least help get the word out because it does seem quite fun and quite important. What are some of the details there? What are you going to be seeing on these field trips? Well, it's going to be a combination of geology and archaeology, and we're still trying to find out, you know, I guess a little bit of a glitch we've run into is that because of the number of people, we got to set up ahead of time as far as which sites we're going to be able to get in to see. Right now we're trying to get into Chimney Rock which is an extraordinary site in southern Colorado, which was the northernmost outlier of the lost Chacoan culture. 
that once built a 10,000, 12,000 square mile infrastructure over the San Juan Basin of New Mexico. Hoping we can get in there, but you know, there's Mesa Verde, there's Canyon of the Ancients, there's a lot of really awesome geology around that area. We may do some exploring up the San Juan River, up the Animas River. So my colleague Brad Young and I are over the next week really going to be trying to get the final details worked out of where we can go and when. But yeah, so the idea is to get a lot of group of like-minded people together in a very cool place, have some great food. You know, I'll be doing some presentations. Some other presenters are going to be presenting some stuff like on the William Hoff method, the Wim Hoff method. Yes. And there's uh, hot springs near there. Hopefully we'll get some time to soak up some of the medicinal properties of these ancient sacred hot springs. Heck yeah. Oh yeah, that's always one of my favorite things to do. When you've lived decades of hard life, you start getting some aches and pains as you get up into your decades. And I found that when I'm traveling, whenever I'm traveling, but particularly out west, there's so many hot springs and most of them have legends associated with them and most of them were considered sacred by native peoples and yeah being able to immerse yourself in that and soak that up is always nice so we're still working out the itinerary but like i say we're going to try to have that settled within the next week actually as is usually the case there's no shortage of places but it's just that some of the sites are a bit restricted so bradley young is calling head trying to arrange for tours and things. So we'll just have to see. It seems like it's going to be a really great time. And I was looking at the schedule myself. I even saw a full moon meditation on there. And that seems pretty interesting. Be on the lookout for orbs of light in the sky responding to that conscious attention. Uh-huh. I know the Gramerica guys kind of like that CE5 contact stuff. So maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll pop off. Well, Hey, who knows? I'm, and if it does, I've got some questions for him. And one of these days, we'll maybe, when I'm ready, we'll talk about the UFO thing because I've got some thoughts on that. And what interests me the most is the thought that it may be something totally different than what people are imagining it to be. Yes. In fact, we will leave it at that. But I, I didn't get to ask you this, but there are many potential interviews in the future, but I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that visuals can be induced or implanted by tectonic and astrological forces. That's a big part of it. Yeah, that's a part of it, for sure. Okay. <laughs> yes, I had that in my notes. So, you know, I've heard you talk about that. But yes, there's definitely more to say. Anyway, Randall, this has been really, really awesome. Fascinating stuff. I know that you could talk at great length about these cycles of catastrophe and all the many decades of work you've done into it. I'm glad that it's being recognized and there are a lot of younger people really interested in these perspectives. They definitely teach us a lot about our environment and as you put it, cosmic ecology, our place in this much bigger system and uh, how, how fragile things are and potentially how chaotic at times they are. So I love it all. And, uh, is there anything else to say about your websites or where people can follow up on your courses and that kind of thing before we close it out? Yeah, there's a lot of videos and written material. So highly recommend people go there and read some of the essays about global change, fully referenced to try to get an alternative perspective on these things. Because I think what we need to leave this conversation with is this, that we're learning that the global 
environment is actually considerably more robust than we had imagined. It actually has extraordinary recuperative properties in the wake of some of these assaults that have been on it. And I think that in the equation that we're looking at here, the truly fragile factor is human civilization. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't take much to erase and undo the last two or 300 years of human history. Certainly a repeat of what happened 13,000 years ago would be more than capable of doing that job. But actually something far less than what happened 13,000 years ago could also do the job and put us right back into the Stone Age. So something for people to think about. Indeed. Well, down the road, I'm sure we can maybe talk more about that and how the trip went and the Hyperboreans and all these esoteric things you have knowledge about. And of course, your thoughts on your UFOs. And we won't wait four and a half years to do it. <laughs> okay. I hope not. I hope not, too. That sounds great, Greg. I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. And yes, I look forward to doing this again. Indeed. Cheers to that. And thank you so much. Take care and keep doing what you do and have fun out there with the Cromerica guys. That's the plan. And how about that, ladies and gentlemen? Randall, the master builder, Carlson, bringing a level of heat that I can barely comprehend. <laughs> no, but I am a big fan of the man. I really liked the first time he was on. It does not feel like it's been so long. There are honestly so many guests that I'd love to have back. So many new guests I'd like to get. And I also have listener requests and people who ask me if I'm interested in covering their work. And I sometimes think about divvying up those five shows a month where one is always a repeat guest, one is always someone new, and then one for conspiracy, one for paranormal, and one for magic. But that's pretty impractical. Instead, I just tend to play it where it lies, and things have worked out quite well for a long time. And this is a show that we squeezed in as a sort of favor to the Gramerica guys. I mean, what an easy favor, right? Because Randall is a great guest anyway. But we wanted to throw a little THC juice on the last remaining tickets for their event in May. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. Kudos to them for setting it up. I just got too many balls in the air right now to make it out there myself. I can't leave when a new website overhaul is launching. That in itself requires me to be here, but I do hope they have a successful event so that more of them can happen. And a Randall return to THC was overdue. I really wanted to talk to him about his take on the Grail. I thought that was a lot of fun. And we also got to talk about Giants. I love just reading the quotes that speak to it, the totality of them is pretty hard to ignore. I've said this before, but when I was on that tour in Armenia, our guide Vazgen kept mentioning places where they had found giant skeletons and Graham just sort of didn't want to hear about that. He said, I'm interested in giant ideas, not giant people. And I thought that was a real shame. But to each their own. I'm glad Randall has put together material on it because it is fascinating. And even he doesn't have much of an answer as to why it's such a secret. Obviously, that context leads to roads they do not want us walking on. And in terms of the grail, I'm sure that my psychedelic receptacle perspective is a bit simplistic. But so much of religion is based on psychedelic and mystical experience. 
You know, you eat the wrong plant and you have one strange vision and that can kick off some weird cult that lasts for thousands of years. And some get bigger than others. But even when Randall quotes something like, the grail is the means of which the wasteland could be restored, that sounds like a lot more poetic way to say the kind of thing I still hear on podcasts today where people will say, if we could just dose Congress with LSD or mushrooms, they might start giving a shit and we could fix society. To me, it's very possible that that's the kind of thing that quote would speak to. Also in this show, I took a shot with the John Brandenburg stuff. I think it's material that Randall would like, or I'd at least like to get his thoughts on, because catastrophism does involve a lot of atmospheric isotope ratio analysis, I think. (laughs) But there's just so much cool stuff out there, you can't expect them to absorb everything. I think next time we talk, it should be about UFOs, because Randall has dropped a few lines that really sound like that Jacques Vallée, Dr. Pasolka perspective. And that's one that I'm really loving right now. And I did have a couple more questions posed for the Plus Show, but Randall's knowledge of catastrophism and the timeline of history is pretty deep. And for him to really make his case, you got to let him go. That's why we have a two-hour show, thankfully, in part. But also, when he gets going on a man-made climate change is a sham rant, that's also something I like to just step back and let him do his thing, because I think he makes a really great case. And that said, I am confident that Randall wouldn't self-identify as a conspiratorially-minded person in general. But when he talks about climate change, he really nails it. And we have a lot of times where a guest might say, I don't think people are organized or competent enough to work together at that scale, or society is too big for a small group of people to have such influence. Well, look at the man-made climate change thing. That's a lie that Randall thoroughly dismantled, but it's shoved down our throats everywhere. And it's one of those things that pseudo-intellectual liberals mainly on Twitter just parrot as if they know anything about the science or the reality or the special interests involved which you have to factor in to pretty much everything. And to me, that issue is right there, neck and neck with vaccines. Just this idea where people who want to sound smart outsource their mental faculties to the experts and then get to be the smug assholes we know they are sometimes by being all high and mighty about these official talking points. But what I'm getting at is that if an idea can be pushed that deeply across the culture with almost no resistance, I mean, any resistance is completely mocked and shamed into total ostracization. So I just look at where the culture is on something like man-made climate change, and it's obvious that some people do have the power to steamroll all other ideas and steer the world where they want it to be. Maybe it's just the next phase of the energy control game for the oil tycoons and the next generation of the robber baron class. Sure, but you have to admit, whoever it is, there are some powerful factions when you really reflect on something like that. And then you reach the inevitable, well, what other things are there that everybody takes for granted that aren't really true? (laughs) And then you're off to the races. Then you're a THC fan. And towards the beginning of the show... I didn't really need us to go over the whole Freemasonry thing. We've been doing this for close to 10 years. I hope we 
can digest that on our own. But I wanted to prod a little bit into Randall's esoteric and magical knowledge, and so it's right in the mix. I hope we're grown up enough to understand that these things are complex and you can't judge individuals as part of a collective. But I also push back a bit when Randall says something like you'd be hard-pressed to find a truly evil Mason. Because take any random group of people and you're going to run into some psychopaths. I get that he's very fond of masonry and it's been hugely beneficial in his life. I understand why. I think we've learned a lot from prying open the same esoteric toolbox. But for me, I've seen plenty of nefarious people cover their tracks with charitable actions. Bill Gates, the Catholic Church, the Rockefellers. So that doesn't really move the needle for me. And I also think some groups... Now, there are many factions of Freemasonry and esoteric orders and secret societies that don't have anything to do with each other. So nothing I say applies to everyone or everything. But you can't deny that some groups have sometimes utilized a filtering mechanism in the past where a good guy can only get so far. Even think about something as fairly open as the CIA or a corrupt corporation in general. They don't bring the good-natured people into their inner circle of nefarious activity. All I'm really saying is I think Randall is a great guy, but I wouldn't vouch for any group as a whole like that. But I get his point. Don't get paranoid over a set of teachings and what is essentially a school. I mean, think about Hogwarts. Hogwarts is just a secret magic school too, but bad people can end up learning some super effective tools for extending their power and capacity to be even better than they were. But you don't really blame Hogwarts for that just because they produce a couple of Voldemorts here and there, do you? You blame the Voldemorts themselves. But what do I know? I just said we shouldn't have to have the Freemasonic caveat conversation after almost 10 years in the game and then sat here and qualified the whole thing with a lengthy, meandering stream of consciousness through vaccines and Harry Potter. So maybe I should just move on. Like every show we do, we have a second hour for people willing to support the Higher Side Chats with their $8 a month subscription. Today with Randall, in our second hour, we talked about Things like the sun's effects on consciousness and how it relates to periods of human progress, a bigger dedication to Randall's complete dismantling of the man-made climate change propaganda push, giants in the culture of the mound builders, and the history of how natural catastrophism was replaced with the global warming narrative. That I thought was really interesting. So show after show, week after week, I do mean it when I say that an hour is just not enough but we have the Plus members to thank for free listeners getting that first hour without any breaks or ads. And to double that time is even better. And what I take away from this show as a whole is that change in our environment is pretty normal if you get just outside of the human lifespan. Rather than millions of years, we can probably think in thousands or tens of thousands and see a lot of change within those windows. Think about how quickly we do rise out of the ashes and rebuild. It seems like that's why we have some ruins today that you can still kind of make out. Maybe that's why we also have some cultural memories around the planet and oral traditions that contain pretty priceless information. Because it wasn't that long ago that we faced a complete upheaval. I don't know, for me it's a lot easier to swallow some of those facts when the timelines are a bit shorter. 
I mean, the book that is the earthly story is still vastly long, but the chapters might be a little more concise than we're generally told. Because we know it's stability and routine that keep the sheeple numb and obedient. All right, I hope everybody has a good 420, and I'll see you at the next joint session on 425. I love you guys. Big thanks to Randall, such a kind, humble, knowledgeable guy, and best of luck to him and the Gramerica crew on their event in May. I'm getting out of here. Your move, CIA, Comet, Concealers, Younger, Dryas, Impact, Deniers, and Giant Skeleton, Secret Keepers. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar And up your magic game And listen to THC You know You go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep till you slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know?